real shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. This is the Jaws episode. I'm gonna start recording the Zoom call now. Okay, uh, let me get the... Are you recording? Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> You're listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie! And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve a bigger podcast. Joining us uh, for the second time is our good friend Kai Van Zalen. Yeah, Zulen. It, it felt wrong. Van Zulen. So Kai, how have you been? Would you like to remind our listeners who haven't listened to your previous episode, Blade Runner, who you are and what you do? And what you stand for. Yeah, I'm Karim Zulu. I'm a Dutch film critic, programmer, editor. So you work with film is a good way of putting that. So what's today's episode, Charlie? It's our first Batch 3 episode and our first episode of 2023. Very excited. The podcast has lasted through a new year. It's not a year old, but it, we have gone through the technical space between years. We have a whole summer ahead of us to survive shark attacks, so that's going to be fun. Well, we're going we're gonna to get into that. Well, t- if you haven't guessed or read the episode title, today's episode is the 1975 Steven Spielberg blockbuster sensation Jaws. When an insatiable great white shark terrorizes the townspeople of Amity Island, Brody, a police chief, Hooper, an oceanographer, and Quint... A grizzled shark hunter seeks to destroy the bloodthirsty beast. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess yes. that we all really like this film. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I, the pause made me worry. I uh, know, pretty uncontroversially, yes. Yeah, I think yeah. this is a really good film. I would argue that it's one of the best Spielbergs, mm-hmm. like possibly top three. Whether or not you think it's the best distillation of what he aims to do as a filmmaker in this period, that's a different question, but I I think that this film is extremely successful in what it sets out to do. What do you think, Kai? Yes, exactly. As a reason why, in a way, more or less changed the entire American film landscape, in a way. For better or worse. No, the way it treats tension and horror and, and and thriller and all of those things it was my first time re-watching it since i was you know very very young and i was just flabbergasted at how like just chills down my spine during those entire early sequences on the beach knowing that something is going to happen not knowing when not knowing to whom and the backdrop of those idyllic like summery holiday days with the you know threat lurking underneath is just so wonderfully constructed there's you know little that hasn't been said about it i also really admired on this rewatch just the sheer amount of restraint that it shows Mm. Not just in the fact that, you know, you don't see the shark for so much of the film, but also you don't really see up close of a shark attack. You also don't get the gratuitous nudity that you might expect from a film like this. It is a very disciplined film because at its core, its objective is to make you scared of going in the water. Mm -hmm. And that's why most of the shots are of the water. And they didn't build a, a set. They were on the water. They built a shark. They did build a shark, but they didn't build it like a soundstage and green screen everything no. like they would now. No, but they did film parts of it on a huge, in a huge tank. Towards the, parts of the end are filmed in an enormous 
water tank, which is so big that they could film around not using like James Cameron style. Are you talking about the bits Sharpie. underwater? Because I think like some of the bits, like the bits on the boat, I think were actually at sea. Right. Maybe that's that's maybe was that's it, it. the yeah, underwater right. stuff, which you know makes a lot of sense because filming underwater is a bit of a ball ache. <laughs> Unless you're James Cameron and you just love it. Yeah. But yeah, I also think that this film is so wonderfully cast yes particularly yes. the three leads it's just you can't imagine anyone else in those roles Roy Scheider Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus. they're just so good and their chemistry is so good and as soon as they come on you totally understand the vibe of that character I think Roy Scheider who we've talked about on this podcast before all that jazz doing a very different performance <laughs> than he does here what I think is so unique about him as a movie star, particularly at this moment, is that he walks this really fine line between not looking like someone from Amity, but also still looking like a person. It's mm. not like a Arnold Schwarzenegger or, more recently, say, a Chris Hemsworth, who doesn't look like an, like they could possibly be a human. No, I think all three leads have that in common. Richard Dreyfuss with his nerdy beard. And, oh, I, I keep forgetting the name of the actor who played Quint. Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. Yeah, because I, I mentioned having seen this film ages ago before rewatching it. I remembered Quint being in much more of it, but he effectively doesn't have a big role until like the last act. Yeah, like in like well into the second half of the film when they uh, get on a boat. But by the time he sh- shows up, he steals the show completely. Roy Scheider is almost sidelined, which is a lot to say for because he still pulls out a great performance. But yeah, his character. Is overshadowed by just a good Quintus. But it's also a personality thing, right? Because he's, he's, Quintus is such an overpowering presence. It's an enormous macho thing. And is he trying to dominate the other two men constantly also? Yeah, and there's the fact that Brody is terrified of water because of something that is hinted at in his backstory, which, by the way, I'm so happy we never find out exactly what happened. We just know that I mean, he's a traumatized person. He, he mentioned something about a drowning, but you don't know who or what or when or... Oh, yeah, you yeah, know, you're right. You don't know if he's the one who almost drowned or if someone he knows drowned. But yeah, it's... So he's terrified of water. So he's out at sea with a functionally... Well, with, with an oceanographer. And how would you describe uh, Quint? Uh, a sharker? A, a shark hunter? A... I, I kind of assume that he makes his living as a fisherman. But specifically hunting big game. I just thought that was more hunting. of a hobby. Well, his whole boat is decorated with shark uh, drawers. That's true. Uh, it's his house, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, 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 sea, a sea dog, a sea lion. A salty yeah. sea dog. Exactly. Right. That's that's how I would describe him. There you go. <laughs> I mean, if he makes uh, that the amount of money he charges every time he does it, maybe he can live off that for a while. Yeah, yeah. I don't think his living expenses are too much. No. I can see him just eating canned food all year round. <laughs> <laughs> just fish it's the same same dishes yeah and maybe some fish on the side but that he catches himself but otherwise doesn't heat it up he just like opens up the can and just has it with a spoon right yeah that kind of thing um, it's cat food and you mentioned that Brody slash uh, Roshider doesn't look like someone from Amity what what, what is Amity to you I thought I thought it was an interesting snippet of because Amity doesn't really exist does it uh, I don't think so. Uh, it shot, filmed... shot on, Mar- on Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, Nantucket. But the way that they talk about Amity sounds like they're talking about uh, Martha's Vineyard, like a small island off the coast of the Atlantic uh, that is very touristy. Yeah, I, I think it's meant to be like a generic small seaside town that, you know, 
as they say, makes summer dollars. Mm-hmm. And that is very quiet, except in the summer, where there's this huge influx of tourism. And for those few months, the entire economy is revolving around the needs of these tourists. Mm-hmm. You have that town meeting where they discuss the importance of tourism for the local economy, and that it's a summer town, which is quite fun because... Up until then, you see how quiet and uneventful life, particularly for Brody, is. Mm-hmm. That he, when he comes into work, he's told that there's some, <laughs> there's a karate class who are fighting the white picket fence of the mayor. I mean, the the, the police station literally has its own white picket fence. It's, it's it's someone's house that they convert into a police station. But he, but he does mention that the reason why he moved there, despite being terrified of the sea, um, or like a re- the reason he gives is that. In New York, you know, it's such a sprawling city and crime is so widespread that you don't feel like you're making a difference. But in a place like Amity, a single cop can change things because, you know, there are no murders ever. Like there there hasn't been a single murder in the past few decades. Which is also why his casting is so good, because I think for the most part, he was famous for films like The French Connection and The Seven Ups, where he played New York cops. Like, he is known for being these sort of grizzled, world-weary characters. So I think there's this meta-casting of him in that environment. It also makes him a weird choice to play Bob Fosse in all that chat. <laughs> it doesn't look like Bob Fosse at all. No. Uh, but yeah, on the subject of Amity being, uh, you know, a summary town, what do we think of the political critic of the film, if you will? I think it reads a lot differently post-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was my experience as well, because I've seen it many times now last year was released in 4k Mm -hmm. in cinemas and i was watching it and it struck me so much different uh, now yeah that whole thing with the mayor pressuring to not close the beaches and um, the business community constantly making the point that that of them bottom line being the most important thing over the concerns of people dying basically and no, no, and then even the fact that they pressure the the first after the first attack, they pressure the medical examiner to change his report. What I think is so is so effective about the the mayor figure in the film is that the moment where he decides to finally close the beaches and send uh, Brody to hunt, out, hunt down the shark is not when the first two people die; is when someone dies the same day that his children are on the beach. It struck me as you know with the COVID comparison. All of those deniers who all of all of a sudden uh, completely changed the narrative once they themselves or someone they cared about died of COVID. I also think Murray Hamilton as the mayor is really good, and it, it's such a good choice to play him as a sort of banal, self-interested but also weak-willed sort of person, mm-hmm. rather than, than you know a more out-and-out antagonist. That he's an obstacle rather than the monster, which and the and that really allows the monster to be on Jaws, on the shark. Bruce. Bruce is the name of the, the model. Yeah. Jaws is the character. We we were talking off mic about differences between the book and the film. And while we're on the subject of the mayor not really being this sinister figure, it's worth just remembering that he, in the book, the reason he wants to keep the beaches open is because he's being blackmailed by the mafia. Yeah, and the book's author was involved in the screenplay, kept insisting that they include that subplot into the film. But it's also really funny because Murray Hamilton is in another film about the mafia that we've covered, uh, The Brotherhood. 
Oh. He's one of the mob bosses in that, the 1968 film The Brotherhood, and he is the least Italian-looking person I've ever seen. <laughs> um, well, how do you feel about the... Is it the difference to you between the part where you don't yet see the shark and then the more you get to see of the shark uh, in terms of how scary the shark actually is? Yeah, uh, well, in terms of how scary the shark actually is, then the answer would be before you actually see him, obviously. But in terms of where he's at, is scariest is actually that scene where he's getting his third victim, the young man who's swimming next to Brody's uh, son, and you can just barely see him under the water. You can see he's like gaping more, barely transparent under the water. I think that's probably the scariest individual moment in terms of when the tension is highest and yeah, when you can't see him or you don't know where he is. Yeah, I think that's just... And then that's the skill of, of Spielberg, I think, is where, for instance, when there's just those two fishermen at night who think they're going to catch the shark easily, and then all you see is this uh, something being pulled into the water and then a piece of floating wood, a piece of floating wood coming to, back towards them, and, and that's <laughs> very scary. Of course, helped by the iconic score, but... I understand the criticism that Jaws is really scary until you see the shark. And maybe it's because I was watching it with that in mind that I don't really buy that criticism. I understand that the shark isn't a shark, that the shark doesn't look exactly like you'd expect a shark to look. However, part of the problem is that we are living in an age where something like that would be made using CGI. And that's not inherently bad but a lot of CGI ages very quickly. I think the fact that the animatronic model of the shark, no matter how much time passes, will always have a weight, will always have light reflecting off it in a way that something physical would. Even if it's not entirely lifelike, I think you understand the threat better because you feel it existing in the world of the film. The threat is always there and that's partly because of the focus on the characters and the sense of danger doesn't go away just because maybe you don't think the shark looks that real personally i don't see it looking particularly fake i do want to ask kai because you said you recently saw it in 4k does it looks yeah on a big screen and so that doesn't i think that doesn't do it favors i think you can see it a little bit more that it's not real, uh, especially when it's in the daylight, when it jumps up on the ship and stuff like that. I think you see it a little bit. You see a little bit more than I used to see. I feel it's sort of the it's it's the West Side Story problem. If you watch a 4K restoration of West Side Story, you can see all the brown face a lot more clearly. Yeah. These movies weren't filmed using 4K technology. It's all retroactive, and they were made to be viewed with the technology available. I don't think it's a weakness of any of these films, and I know this isn't what you're saying, but I don't think it's a weakness of any of these films that they couldn't preempt technological advances decades down the line. Yeah, sorry, but earlier I wasn't commenting on how the shark looked. Actually, I absolutely love Bruce's animatronic model. I was more commenting on the sensation of fear and suspense of when the shark is unseen lurking underwater waiting to pop up versus where you always know where he is and he's constantly attacking the boat at the end, which is, it's more adrenalinic, uh, it's more climactic, but it's less suspenseful. And I do think that the sensation of fear suspense is higher when you can't see where the monster is until it suddenly pops out. Yeah, I think that's the strength is just because you have this vast body of water and anywhere the danger could be because you can't see it until it's 
right up in front of you and it's too late. You know, it's why they shoot him with a barrel. I mean, technically they shoot him with a barrel because they think that the barrel will slow him down and tire him. But then, you know, obviously the shark is super powered. He, he, he can break entire boats with his teeth. Uh, so that doesn't work. But then it becomes a cinematic tool for the viewer to always know where the shark is because there's this bright yellow barrel just floating. I also think that the score does a great job of getting you familiar with the shark even before you've not seen it. Mm. That you're sort of familiar with its perspective before you see it from anyone else's. Mm. And I think that's a really clever thing that's a great combination of editing and music that I think works really well. The John Williams score in this, other than like the very iconic, you know, Jaws theme, the overall score isn't much like that. It is much more about the sort of peaceful life in Amity and it's such a great contrast when you get to the Sharks theme that you have this very classic John Williams-ish peaceful vibe going on. I, 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 think it works, I think it works extremely well. I think there's parts of it towards the end where when they're even when they're hunting the shark there's these daytime parts where they're not directly in contact with the shark where it's just this very jaunty music which I think takes out some of the possible tension a little bit too much I think. I think, I think it's too present that sometimes in that last third uh, during the hunt. And that's fair. Yeah. It didn't bother me particularly, but I, I know what you're talking about and I can see why it would, even though it, that wasn't my experience. No, I, I feel like I've also gone back and forth on this, depending on what time I, when I might have watched it, because I feel like, you know, like the first time I had that problem, then the second time I thought, oh, it's so overbearing. It's like, oh, it's not bad at all. And then the third time I was like, yeah, no, it was really good. Oh, no, wait. This... <laughs> so it depends on what expectation I'm going in with also, I guess, but... But it also depends on how you watch it, because obviously if you watch it in a cinema, there's going to be a different sound quality to it that maybe will highlight some parts of the music a bit more than if you were watching it on your laptop. But also watching it with other people, you have more of a sense of shared tension rather than it being your personal experience. Yes. And you can feel the energy of a whole room experiencing a moment together rather than on your own. I mean, I watched it with, on this rewatch, I watched it with two other people who hadn't seen it before. And it was fascinating watching their reactions to moments I knew were coming. And when it's a film that you're quite familiar with and you're watching people watch it for the first time, part of the fun is watching their reactions as much as it is watching the film. And the film is extremely successful in, well, not just scaring you, but also getting you totally involved in the lives of these characters. I don't know, what do you guys think? Oh, totally, yeah. No, the, the harrowing sensation you feel when, after the little boy dies, when you see everyone rushing to, to the water's edge, and then his mom desperately looking for him, who was distracted just a moment earlier. Th that, that moment was heartbreaking, and we knew nothing about those characters, and the fact that it could have happened to anyone on that beach, although it was clearly set up that it was going to happen to that boy, made it hit like a truck. And each character who has even the briefest appearance is given a hint of a personality or just a broader nuance that they're they're not just there to serve the narrative they're there because there's a town that's full of people most of whom are fishermen or people who work around the sea and and it's yeah it's, it's just such a tightly constructed ecosystem before it gets into its second half and becomes such an intimate character study and a study of masculinity uh, among other things he manages so effortlessly to be basically two films at once and i think that's one of the greatest things about it more so than it's or at the same level as its horror elements just to talk briefly about the horror elements i want to just throw in that i don't view any characters even the ones that do die 
as purely existing in the film to be eaten by a shark. That it is even the girl at the beginning of the film who we presumably spend the least time with, she has this whole personality and motivation for going in the water and she's doing cool stuff when she's swimming in the water. Nothing feels generic and that really helps every death feel meaningful and tragic. And that's what really sets this above... I don't know if you would class this as a horror film. I know some people do because the characters feel realized and not just there to die. What I'm really describing isn't horror. It's it's bad horror. But that, but that's why Jaws is one of the best horrors if you want to uh, categorize it. I think such. it's definitely a horror film. I mean, among other things. Sure. It's a, it's a monster movie, I guess. It's, oh, it's a monster, monster movie. movie. It's a thriller. It's 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 a bro movie about bros just hanging out, see, hanging out. It's, it's kind of an gay. Oldman movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just people chatting. Yeah, because one of the most things, I- iconic scenes is is the, that scene where Quint describes the aftermath of delivering the atom bomb. Well, yeah, that whole speech about the SS Indianapolis, which wasn't in the book, Charlie told me, uh, they, it's, a, it's a screenplay original, and it's such a spellbinding speech, the delivery of it, the slot where it's placed in the narrative after the sequence of them bonding over their scars and just having this very, you know, sharing this, like, camaraderie, you know, a kind of reminiscent of a, you know, military barracks, like, you know, very masculine space, but still very tender and very, and very vulnerable and very open to each other just joking around about their past experiences and then this absolutely traumatic horrific story that links into this broader historical trauma which I don't quite know what the role of the Hiroshima bomb is in this film or if it does have one but it is a moment when you say like it, uh, there's this camaraderie and then all of a sudden uh, you would say nowadays uh, things get real <laughs> Yeah, but also like, you know, the fact that they are talking about war crimes, it's kind of, it's a banal question to ask in a film like this, but like, who are the real monsters, the shark or the humans? Uh, who knows? Well, in this film, it's the shark. And it's uh, the atomic bomb. That's true. <laughs> so I don't know if, if Americans who have grown up seeing this, who might have even grown up still during the Second World War, would see it as a war crime with the intended audience. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking that. Just to quickly zoom in on that speech as well, the stuff that Quint says about a rogue shark that you know gets a taste of human blood and then wants more of it that's nonsense that that that's not how it works you could train an animal to want to eat human flesh but that would be a very long process it wouldn't just be you get a taste and then you want more and more and more that is a myth that is perpetuated by this film and yeah. isn't necessarily that helpful to the preservation of marine life yeah, but I think it is crucial that it's Quinn that says that, whereas earlier Hooper, the oceanographer, mentioned that the reason why sharks attack humans is that the movements that they do when they swim remind them of their natural prey, which is closer to real shark attacks that have happened, which usually have happened to surfers because the surfboard has a fin underneath that looks like a seal's fin, is why I remember having heard a while ago. But the bottom of the line is that shark attacks are so remarkably rare. This uh, comedian he says it's not a shark attack. A shark attack is if it would come up out of my bathtub in my home. That would be a shark attack. It's the myth that like sharks would go up to unsuspecting swimmers in public beaches. Whereas usually when people die to a shark, it's because they're the ones who went really close to a shark's natural habitat without taking any precautions. 
Dolphins are bastards, though. Dolphins are bad people. I was talking to Kai a while back when we were choosing alternates for this episode, and a film I was considering choosing was Mike Nichols' Day of the Dolphin. I've never heard of it. We, because I, I wanted to do something to redress that balance. It's, it's, I think it's about dolphins being trained to, like, assassinate politicians. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's like why that. it's called Day of the Dolphin, right? Because it's a play on the Day of the Jackal. Is that a story about the assassination? Yeah, the, the sniper who... Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I've only ever seen the poster, which uh, has Kirk Douglas looking very angry, and then it says he accidentally trained the dolphin yeah, to kill the president. Accidentally trained the dolphin. Accidentally, he accidentally <laughs> trained to kill the president. It's not Kirk Douglas, it's George C. Scott. Right, but he did... But it's that. <laughs> it's very much. It's very much that type. And I said I would pick it if only it had been a good film, <laughs> <laughs> which apparently it isn't particularly good. Although I will watch it at some point. All right. Well, we are out of time. Do does any of you have any last thoughts? Any final thoughts? I have one last okay. thing I want to say. This film doesn't need to be two hours long, and most films like this would be about ninety minutes. But the fact that it earns its entire runtime, I think, is such an achievement that you get moments like them just putting equipment together, you seeing how they tie the knots and the Indianapolis speech. That could have been cut and the plot wouldn't have changed, but you get such a sense of these characters by spending this amount of time with them. I just thought it was quite interesting that it is longer than this movie's bare bones would need to be. Or like that scene with his youngest son who's just mimicking his expressions oh yeah when they're doing grimaces to each other that's yeah yeah but because the first half was just so much build up towards that eventual and just these characters and these small details also one of the random details that i really noticed the last time i saw it was i think it's this third attack when they with the boys in the bay and then that the random guy who's on the boat in front of them gets eaten or attacked i don't know um but somebody shouts like somebody get a gun doesn't somebody have a gun which is sounds like that you would only hear an american film and i was surprised that no one had the gun but also they're on a beach so okay uh should we talk availability uh yes okay jaws is very available you can Rent and buy it on Amazon, Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, Rakuten TV, and Apple TV. Now, shall we move on to our next film? We shall. Let's play the... Trailer for White Dog. The man who owned it. How did he turn him into a racist dog? It's simple. Find a black wino who desperately needs a drink, or a black junkie who do anything for a fix, and then pay them to beat that dog of yours when he was a puppy. You got yourself an attack dog. I don't know what you're talking about. Come on, Julie, a dog trained by professionals to attack people. White Dog, a 1982 film directed by Samuel Fuller. Julie, an actress, runs over a dog by accident and decides to take charge of the recovery. She soon discovers that the dog is trained to carry out racial attacks. She employs Keys, trainer, in an attempt to retrain him. So, this film, Sam Fuller, who already appeared in batch one of the podcast with his Crimson Kimono as my alternate to Chinatown. This film, so the reason why I chose it for this episode is not only because it involves animal attacks, Paramount 
the studio producing it were marketing it with the tagline Jaws with Paws and Samuel Fuller who was you know already quite notoriously a politically controversial director who liked to stir up this discourse and trouble took this premise which was an adaptation of a French book which we might get into later and made it more politically nuanced and a bit more cerebral than I think Paramount was hoping it was going to be to the point where the film was completely stunted upon release I don't remember how many screens it was shown in but like barely none and it it only had a second life when it was taken up by Criterion a few decades later and re-released on home media so this is a film that was you know really flew under the radar at the time was uh, really forgotten it almost has the feel of a TV movie at points uh, and it kind of feels it feels very 1970s in a way which I think it's why it's it's such a good contrast to Jaws and yeah I know that that's just my introduction to it what did you guys think of this film? Knowing that it was a Samuel Fuller film it felt and, and I don't mean this as a criticism of it, just an observation, it felt more trashy than I expected. Yes. Rather than it, it being a TV movie, it felt more sort of schlocky. It's very schlocky. It's very melodramatic. Yeah. It's very over the top. And I think for the premise of the film, that works. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's totally by design. I think it's a decision that Samuel Fuller clearly intended. Mm-hmm. But it was a bit of a surprise. And but once I got on board with the overall tone and style of the film, I found myself. Really really enjoying it. I mean, I I knew that Samuel Fuller was a good director and I also knew that you had a lot of respect for him so you wouldn't choose a film that you thought was bad. But I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it and got out of it. I thought Paul Winfield as Keys is brilliant. I mean, much like Quint, he shows up halfway through the film, completely steals the show from the protagonist. Um, I would argue he sort of becomes a protagonist halfway yeah, through. Yeah, in a way In a way does. that Quint doesn't. So Kai, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm first of all, I'm, I was, when I first saw this, I was already a big fan of Fuller. This feels so, and this feels like, to me, it's really like a, a Fuller film in that, just that, that direct, in-your-face quality of it that he always has. This is, doesn't beat around the bush, he just starts straight away and grabs you, basically. Or as he himself once puts it, or I think he says, once there's seven important words, uh, important letters to a film, E-motion. <laughs> 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 yeah. Something like that. He's, he's, and it's actually because I I've got because uh, I've, I've I have two books on Fuller right here. Oh yeah, you sent me some some screenshots from those. Would you like to read the titles out so that some listeners might want to look into? So them? one of them is the films of Samuel Fuller. If you die, I'll kill you. Okay. <laughs> Just by Lisa Dombrowski. And the other is Sam Fuller, Film is a Battleground by Lee Server. Mm-hmm. And if you're getting one, I would recommend that one because it's 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 a bit older, but it, this is also less academic and it has a full-length interview uh, with him discussing his entire career. Yeah. Which you... So yeah, that's you sent it. me some uh, snippets of. Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, I think what you said, like, it's very in your face, but in a way that feels almost refreshing because whilst the racial politics of this film are nuanced, the film's stance on racism itself isn't. Like, the film makes it clear that whoever trained this dog to become what it is is a horrible person. It makes it clear 
clear that they did it for reasons that are completely amoral but the point that it's trying to make is about whether racism in and of itself is a behavior that rather than being good or bad is it learned or is it innate and if it is learned can it be unlearned and you know we're not going to spoil what the final moments of the film uh what statement they make about this but it's still a statement that is it's not it's not a clear conclusion to the to this you know all-encompassing question they refer to it as a sickness yeah and using the dog as a victim of that sickness Mm -hmm. because because you find out how white dogs are trained and I don't think this is a spoiler because it doesn't change the plot but that you essentially you hire a black person to abuse the animal yeah. and uh, that's how they learn to associate skin colour with pain and aggression yeah which is you know like not to get into too much real world politics but it is reminiscent of the way for instance a lot of American cops are shown videos during training of this is what gonna, what's going to happen to you when you go into inner city and neighborhoods you're gonna get shot and that's why they get so trigger happy around black people that is what drives the broader population into espousing racist beliefs is jaws more about the shark than white dog is about the dog i think it's interesting because like white dog it's in so many ways because obviously filler wants to comment on people being racist but it's not that like white dogs weren't a thing that actually existed i think they were mostly common during the days of slavery um to hand down as slaves who tried to escape is the term did the term exist before the book i think it did yeah right because it's written by romain gary uh he's a french no, he's a, director i don't know if he directed or... he was he was married he, he was married to james seberg was... for a spell and how the ended yeah. is hilarious i'll and tell the story later but uh yeah but basically this the basic core of the story is where that she some at some point finds a dog and then that dog attacks a black person and then more times and then they find out that this is what happened mm-hmm. uh the whole concept they're, they're talking about and i think that's i don't know if they did add any more involvement with the dog after that but do you know who was originally supposed to direct it roman polanski yes and then they he only didn't because he fled the country yeah. yeah i wonder why he fled the country that's such a mystery yes and then they basically they wanted to they had a half-finished script and they wanted to they had already booked it for to film in six weeks so they thought who can rewrite this and film it within six weeks I know Samuel Fuller the guy who's already gotten in trouble twice for making two overtly political films I think I mentioned the Polanski Polanski anecdote when I brought Crimson Kimono on as an alternate to Chinatown but so in the original book the trainer keys in the book is, a, is an anti-white racist who's training the dog to attack white people whereas in the film is trying to make the dog unlearn his racist behavior altogether and i haven't read the book i don't know too much about gary's own political opinions i know fuller liked his writing a lot but there is something about the book that strikes me as being a bit both sides in the way that i was alluding to earlier when i was trying to dispel the myth that something having nuanced racial takes the nuances about the nature of racism itself it seems like the book with this premise is kind of making an argument about oh yeah the people who train them are racist but look black people can be racist too which like on its own it's true that black people can be racist but like why make this point in a book about dogs that are trained to kill black people I don't know what I do know about Gary's personal life is that as I said he was married to Jean Seberg and she cheated on him with Clint Eastwood at which point he challenged uh, Clint Eastwood to a duel which Clint Eastwood rejected which I think is hilarious for so many reasons one, challenging someone to a duo, you know, in, in the 20th century. Two, out of all the people you could challenge to a duo, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> 
unlike Peter Benchley, uh, Gary never got to see um, White Dog and give his opinion on the changes they made. He tragically uh, committed suicide in 1980. Right. And so we will never actually know what he would have made of White Dog and whether the changes that took place, not just in the adapting process, but socially over the years from when the book was written, mm-hmm. whether his views would have changed by that point. Yeah, and another interesting point, that there's a new, I wouldn't call it a remake, there's a film called White Dog that came out last year. That's a French film, and I think it's an adaptation of the real-life story of uh, Romain Gary's encounter with the White Dog. And I don't know, I, I haven't seen it. It came out very recently. I have no opinions on it. I, the reviews have been quite mixed from what I've seen. <laughs> yeah, Romain Gary and uh, Gene Seberger characters. Yes, interesting. It's sort of a soft remake. But I, I haven't seen it actually. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into detail about it. So we've talked a lot about the politics of the film. Just to talk about the protagonist for a bit. So Christy McNichol is for a large part, the focus of the film. Mm-hmm. What do we think of her? Good performance, good character? I think it's a good performance, and I think that... I also think it's a good character, because she's this kind of, like, aspiring LA actress, in and of itself, you know, not the most interesting premise, but, I mean, there's this... When we're talking about it being schlocky and very in-your-face, there's this setup at the beginning where, like, she runs over the dog and rescues him, and then she's talking to her boyfriend, who randomly brings up the fact that she's living all on her own in hills, like, outside the lake, and you know anything could happen someone could break into her house and hurt her and not one scene later a guy breaks into her house and attempts to assault her to which the dog saves her but I think this is such a great setup not because of how you know on your face it is but because it establishes that she is she's indebted to this dog like she has her life her well-being uh, entirely indebted to this dog so even when she discovers that the dog has this darker side inside him you never question her for wanting to redeem him and for wanting to to save him and for wanting to preserve him. Unlike the characters in Jaws as well, she's never under threat from the dog in a way that the three main characters are at threat from the shark. Yeah. So to my question earlier, is it more about the dog than it is about the shark? I think it is because you're invested in the journey that the dog is being taken on because the characters care about the dog in a way that no one cares about the shark. Again, the shark is another obstacle whereas the dog isn't the obstacle it's the dog's training that's the obstacle yeah but if anything the one human character who has the most dramatic arc is keys because uh, we yeah. get we get his backstory and he, he has a drive he has a goal he's been wanting to retrain a white dog for you know most of his career there's almost like his career goal is to be able to do this Failed twice already right and he's failed like, yeah a couple of times already but also the dog himself he is remarkably anthropomorphized at points. There's this whole scene where I'm not going to spoil the circumstances but it's almost like a jailbreak scene I want to describe it where the dog shows a level of intelligence and acumen to the point where he's able to identify an electrified fence and jump over it again in a very very dramatic (laughs) shot but that almost reminded me of some of those old like 1980s Disney movies with like live action movies with talking animals where the animals would do these things 
that you know were very cartoony and very anthropomorphized uh, intelligence wise but like 100 more dimensions yeah yeah the but like Glenn, the live the action Glo- yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah something like that so uh, I want to shout out Bill Ives who plays the other animal trainer Carruthers mm-hmm. not only for giving what I think is a really fun and surprisingly nuanced performance but also just looking a lot like George R.R. R. Martin oh yeah not not in that picture but <laughs> <laughs> and he has a, a, a film poster of a in Dutch which I found really weird and I've tried to find out which film it is but it's because it's just it's just it's just a generic picture of a it has a girl in, in on the poster and above it says het geweer which means the gun which is difficult to google i'm i'm could could have, could have been a made-up film and the fact that they wrote it in dutch was the joke he, he's uh, also yeah. got a dartboard of r2d2 right because they're putting animal trainers out of business because now they can just put robots in their movies which could be a digger jaws that's true um, i hadn't thought of that yeah which one is scarier uh, jaws or white dog in terms of scarier draws, for sure, uh, White Dog. White Dog is so melodramatic at points; it almost deflates the tension. But I think White Dog feels White Dog feels sadder in a way. It feels more tragic. Maybe because when you watch draws, you know it's gonna have an overall happy ending you know although a bittersweet happy ending white dog just feels a bit too real at points of because of the type of issues that it's commenting on that you can't really let yourself uh, be taken away into the the suspension of disbelief of this being a monster movie about a supernatural being almost I, i i agree i think it's definitely more upsetting than it is scary that doesn't mean like it's a total downer i think it's there are bits that are very entertaining it's not totally you know you won't be crying the whole way through it but i think the intention is more to use the structure of a creature or monster movie to make you think about the way we treat animals and also the way we talk and think about each other particularly people of different races to ourselves i i at the same time i'm sure there is a very visceral fear of this sort of thing that are experienced by non-white viewers mm-hmm. in a way that won't be the case with jaws so the the fear in White Dog, I think, are more specific. I would say that not just to non-white viewers, because I find this one of the scariest films I've ever seen. I have a phobia of dogs. Oh, I see. So whenever I see a snarling, howling dog, that's that image is just... And then he runs towards people. That's just that's terrifying to me. But also, when we, we originally at one point were scheduled to record this last mm-hmm. year, the week before we were going to record... I was actually attacked by a dog which was also white not a white dog in the in the uh, figurative sense in the is in the film but a literal white dog because uh, my, my i have a side or day job as a mailman which already uh exposed me to angry dogs but this particular one was i was just in the neighbor's yard of that dog delivering mail and in some confusion of the people next door going in and out of their house uh he got uh, away from them because they knew it was a danger uh and he charged at me and the lady uh loaned him she basically dove after him and swatted him away from me as he was trying to bite me yeah. uh so i he I got bit, but not my clothes didn't get penetrated. But it was very scary. Oh no, that's, that, that <laughs> sounds. I had a bruise. That, that sounds terrifying. Um, and then later they put him in there because I had an actual cage for him, and they explained to me like because when then I was invited.
it, you know, just to see if I was okay, just check up and because I had to check in the mirror, see if I was hurt or not. And and then when I came downstairs again, it was in the case, she was like a cheery puppy, not at all interested in me. And they explained that it was a they got him from a dog asylum and apparently he was abused by a previous owner who used to wear a uniform. Oh. So when everybody ever, because they said when strangers in uniform came by, whether it's policemen walking by, whether it's construction workers doing something in the house, you would completely lose it, the dog. But when it was women in uniform, no problem. That's so it was specifically men in uniform. So the very reminiscent of, of the, of the yeah. film. <laughs> God, uh, yes. I'm glad you got out okay of that. That sounds really scary, especially if you already have a phobia of dogs on top of that. Yeah, now before I became, uh, became a postman, I was kind of losing that fear, but then became a postman and came back. Oh my God, I can imagine how many... Uh, God, what a downer to end this section on. Well, like, if I have one criticism for this film, it's probably that what you were saying earlier, Charlie, about Jaws giving every single character a weight... A lot of the victims of the dog in this film don't feel like they have much to them other than being black, uh, which is a downer for a film whose you know core black cast is so uh, fulfilled and so nuanced that a lot of the victims. Right. And then know. there's the rapist. But and then there's the oh the, the, yeah, the ra- he's white though, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, white. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the only black character well, I suppose there's well, the, Joe there's, there's the there's the truck driver there's the no, but, and I'm saying with weight it's, it's Keys and the oh yeah no you're a, right and his employee which who is only in a scene yeah that's right no there's, there's so I think it's about. just Keys yeah because so, even here's another thing because the promotional material gives away what this film is about mm-hmm. do you think they should have been more protective over what the dog's problem was because the shock of that could have been very effective in this film or do you think it's responsible to say this is what this film's about you should know this going in I mean I, I either or I think that I think that the promo material should warn you of what it's about but uh, which which promo material for which like just just, just because at the time it got shelved oh yeah no that's true that's true after some test yeah. screenings um, partly because the uh, NAACP threatened to protest it saying that they were afraid they were worried basically that white racists in America would see this as a insp- take this as inspiration. Yeah, uh, the, the, the that, was, that was all during the botched Paramount marketing. Yeah, because apparently it was a success in Europe or a decent success. Yeah, no, no, I know in in, Amer- in America it was basically like if it, it was not released at uh, all. No, not at all. I, th- I thought it was. It had like maybe a couple of screenings here and there. But it, I think it had like a, a week, one week in Detroit. Yeah. I re- read in one of these two books. That, <laughs> um, and, and basically they said like, yeah, this is. Uh, getting bad feedback um, but then there was also that threatened protest but the person who threatened it is ironic one also who advised them in earlier parts of the screenwriting which uh, to the annoyance of Sam Fuller was like all these people are in, involved in my movie mm-hmm. Which is slightly ironic because his one thing is like, yeah, you might, uh, some people might protest this. So you might be worried about that. And then the, that exact advisor then <laughs> came to protest it. Uh, um, but, you know, it's, it's valid. It's, it's the same yeah, time yeah. as... Uh, but th- th- that was all before the film was actually released. And like, you know, nowadays with Second Life, we're able to judge it more for 
the content of the actual text rather than what it might have been or might not have been. One final final point I want to want to make is that as we were talking about its horror elements and how how afraid it makes you in particular, Kai, because of your particular phobia of dogs. I think there is something that this film does which reminds me of some things that kind of Jordan Peele does in his in his films. It takes a setting that is for most people incredibly peaceful and idyllic, you know, the, the Los Angeles suburbia, and turns it into a horror hellscape because from the perspective of the black people who are being hunt- hunted by this dog, this, you know, white suburban place can be a, a site of horror. So I, I think that's something that the, the film, it's a nuance that the film uh, hits very well, similarly with the way it talks about gender, where this same place, which could be considered idyllic by many people, is actually a site of danger for the main character who could be, you know, assaulted by anyone because she doesn't have protection. Yeah, that's it for me for this film. Yeah, right, I think what you're saying there is that what I find fascinating with a lot of Sam Fuller films and that there's, on the one hand, there's these very, there's all these nuances and, and ambiguities, uh, ambiguous approaches to where these subjects and then at the same time, it's not very subtle at all, which I guess what I like about him as well. It, it, does, it doesn't have subtle morals, but it's got a subtle reading of reality and... Right. And the solutions to problems. Okay. Should we talk availability? Yes. You can rent and buy it on Amazon, Google Play, Microsoft, YouTube, Apple TV, and Sky Store. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's talk about our next film. I think this is the first documentary film that we've covered on the podcast. Ever. Yes, it is. All right. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Tilicombo is the one that went after her. Don is the senior trainer here at Shamu Stadium. She captured what it means to be a SeaWorld trainer, that it made me realize what happened to her really could have happened to anyone. I've been expecting somebody to be killed by a telecom. We weren't told much about it, other than it was trainer error. It didn't just happen. It's not a singular event. You have to go back to understand this. The speedboat herded them in they could just pick out the young ones. This is the worst thing that I've ever done. When Tillicum arrived at SeaWorld, he was twice as large as the next animal. We stored these whales in what we call a module, which was 20 feet across and 30 feet deep, and the lights were all turned out. Probably led to what I think is a psychosis. in captivity are all psychologically traumatized. It's not just Tillicum. If you were in a bathtub for 25 years, don't you think you'd get a little psychotic? Dawn would tell you that it was her mistake. They blamed her. It's just a bold-faced lie. I was just instructed to get rid of the day. The industry has a vested interest in spinning these. That sells a lot of Shamu dolls. It sells a lot of tickets at the gate. There's no record of an orca doing any harm in the wild. Blackfish is a 2013 documentary directed by Gabriella Capithwaite. Notorious killer whale Tilikum is responsible for the deaths of three individuals, including a top killer whale trainer. Blackfish shows the sometimes devastating consequences keeping such intelligent and sentient creatures in captivity. What do we think? Blackfish, go. Saw a white dog. It's I was a blackfish. Thinking, I was thinking <laughs> blackfish, white dog. Anything else? Uh, we got on the land, we're going back into the water. Is there a film called Blue Whale? I assume so. Yeah. I've 
seen this twice. I saw it once at university and, you know, once uh, a couple of days ago. It is... It's, it's it's a very heartbreaking documentary. What else is there to say about it? It shows many things, not only the fact that, as the synopsis uh, alludes to, Telecom was involved with the death, the deaths of a few people, but it's making a, an indictment of the whole using animals for show business and all the dirt that's behind it uh, at, at the source of it. And basically the fact that there is no way to make a system like this ever ethical, despite the best effort of people like... Uh, trainers who are being interviewed who show actual care and affection for these animals and it's just tragic and and just depressing all around uh, which i think is, is what you want it to be politically for, for for a for a documentary that wants to be politically act and politically spurring yeah i think it's very successful in making you walk away with a very cynical view of like you said animals in captivity but specifically SeaWorld and organizations like them. What do you think, Kai? Yeah, no, it's, it definitely uh, works in that way. I think it's almost as a documentary felt too uh, easy in that sense. Like, I, you can just, you can just feel it and nod your head and agree with the express sentiment. And also because now it's been almost 10 years since it's been released and it's actually been effective from what I understand. No, it, it, it's definitely affected SeaWorld from an investor's point of view. So its share prices have gone down. They also have to factor into investment agreement the risk of storytelling so that documentaries and testimonies can be made and and could potentially affect share prices further so it's changed the way that they're do, that they're being forced to do business which i think we can only really look at as a good thing if we agree with the sentiments of this documentary which i happen to i thought it also actually changed them in how they actually get and treat animals or is that yeah i, I think it has to some extent but you know like french said the documentary is still arguing that no matter how well you treat an animal in captivity the animal is still in captivity i think since the documentary seaward have tried to defend themselves by bringing attention to the, the organization's conservation efforts and release efforts for the animals but you know not dissuading them for doing more of that but they can do that and stop doing circus shows which is what effectively uh, okay, so oh, i thought i thought they stopped doing that but that's not apparently not the case then i don't know because there's also the, there's a documentary there's also the osha investigation which is, which is shown in the documentary, which is obviously more about the safety of workers at SeaWorld, which they show in the documentary a brief a brief, cut, a brief shot at the end that shows that trainers are no longer allowed to jump on whales during shows, but they have to be separate from them with a barrier, which again, I don't know how helpful that is for the whales themselves. No, the, the, this, the, the guy, the representative of OSHA who's in the film, he's also arguing that yeah, they should just stop doing it mm. all together. And I, the, I found him actually the very pleasant voice that man has it's very pleasant to listen to <laughs> but um but was what i was saying originally that it did feel a bit like this documentary is point it's a good point i agree with it that's it to me i don't yeah i think that i don't know it, it depends on where you're coming from because if you're already someone who's fairly educated about animal rights then watching this film will be depressing but it won't really change the way you behave but right. maybe yeah. showing this to someone who is enamored with practices of zoos or animal shows or circuses or 
circuses but doesn't really know the uh, dirt that's behind them, then it can become educational. It's also worth pointing out that maybe the fact that the points that this documentary is making feel obvious is a success of the documentary in 2013. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'd feel the same uh, if you'd yeah. watched it 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I, I missed it at the time. I do know there was a, quite a bit of hype around that and there was a similar, I think the year before there was The Cove, which was about dolphin hunting, I think, or other whale hunting. And then slightly before that, there was also a documentary on Kaiko. Oh, yeah. Which is the orca which they made free willy with. My biggest problem with this documentary, and I know I chose it, so I shouldn't have a problem, but I still think it's really valuable. You can have, you can have problems. I'm with... I'm, I was being facetious, yeah. but I still think it's very effective in ways that I'll talk about in a sec. But my problem with it is that it frames the debate too much for me around worker safety and human safety rather than the evils of captivity. And there's, there is a fair amount about the evils of captivity, but it's I don't think it's the focus of this film. And that's fine, but I, just, I would urge anyone that sees this film and then has an interest in it to seek out other perspectives that have more focus on the animals. Blackfish should be the beginning of a conversation, not the conversation. I don't know, more of my natural empathy towards the animals in the film that made me feel like the film was making quite a clear point from the point of view of the animals. If anything, when they... So there are some moments that are meant to be incredibly emotional and tear-jerking that are about the people who got killed by whales. But I think that is part of a whole narrative that the film is spinning around the fact that, first of all, whales aren't aggressive towards their trainers because they're crazy. There's, I think there's literally one of the interviewees says these exact words. They're not crazy. They are kept in captivity and they're frustrated. They need an outlet for, you know, the fact that when they're out in the wild, they have the entire ocean to swim around and they, uh, and they can hunt. Um, and there's also another couple of lines by the interviewees where they say that they genuinely love the ways that they care, that they care for. At one point, someone says that although he was aware of SeaWorld's unethical practices, he stayed working working there because he felt like he couldn't abandon Telecom and he wanted to be there for Telecom. But then later on, when it gets very tear-jerky around the fact that these people have died, it, I wasn't put off by that because it is a tragedy that they died. And they also bring attention to the fact that two of the trainers who died, the two more notable ones, Dawn, who basically spurred the making of this film, and then the other trainer who died in the, in the Tenerife Park, they were incredibly competent and they were incredibly like good with the animals themselves and it's almost making a point like the fact that these people not only is the corporation torturing these animals but then the people who actually pay the consequences for it are the ones who don't deserve it as individuals and I, I think that's what was so effective about making it about the humans in those moments I'm not saying it's not effective mm -hmm. I'm just saying that if you're looking for an animal rights film I think there are oh so many so many, so many. So many great ones yeah. and I think this does a lot but I think it does undermine the point that you, you're saying and I think they do attempt to make this point that they're not born psychotic they're not aggressive by nature it, they use the word psychotic I'm not I hope I'm not using that word too glibly but then they undermine that later by discussing how oh so many of the orcas in SeaWorld have Tilikum's DNA so they make it a question of nature by treating Tilikum as something naturally aggressive in that oh you, you know the bit I'm yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, that, which is, a weird, a, which is a weird which is such scene. a weird choice yeah. for, for that yeah. the reason why I 
think this documentary really works for me is what you're saying. If you view it fundamentally as a story about a group of people mourning the loss of a friend and co-worker and in the case of Alex the Tenerife trainer uh, uh, partner Mm -hmm. and how they were betrayed and gaslighted by an organisation that I think is where the documentary is strongest Mm -hmm. and most engaging the stuff about marine biology is really interesting but I feel like that part of it deserved its own documentary also I think that's partly because the people that are talking talking about this marine they're the former trainers but as they establish themselves that doesn't mean they're experts in their in that field because that's that's what one of the things that they, they did find talking in the beginning one of the trainers says basically yeah i had no training i had no education for this i was just hired basically without any qualifications gave me they just i had to work with other trainers and they basically say i yeah, just do this and this and you'll learn it by doing yeah, we were kind of missing a, a Hooper character in this film, if you, if you want to bring right. it back to this. <laughs> yeah, and, and then later uh, one of them says like that he fooled himself into thinking that he had a real relationship with the orcas and he said that he fooled himself into what he says, I think, is that our relationship existed of more than just me giving him fish. No, but it just I found it notable and it remind, I thought it would be would make for an interesting double viewing with uh, Grizzly Man. Oh, yeah. I was thinking of, of Grizzly course, Man. Yeah. But... I think that, that moment was very effective because it doesn't undermine the whales. What? So, step back. Very early on, the film makes a point about the whales' humanity. Because it obviously wants to draw the audience in emotionally. It shows how they cry and wail, uh, as in W-A-I-L, uh, when they're separated from their mothers. Um, it shows how different uh, colonies uh, develop like different languages. Like It's clearly making a point about their similarities with humans in order to make the audience more empathetic to them. And that line about the orca not caring about the trainer beyond them being a source of food is one of the things that makes them the most human to me because obviously when you're when you're trapped in a pool, the person who gives you food is your jailer. And no matter how nice they are to you, no matter how accommodating they are to you, you know, it's someone from a different species who spe- speaks a different language and they you depend on them for survival, but they are also the barrier that you need to cross in order to get out. So in the, in that in that sense, that made that made Telecom or the whales as a whole feel very. I don't want to use the word human or anthropomorphic. Just just very empathetic and emotional animals. I, I also think that from the trainer's perspective, and this is very relatable, that if you have qualms about whether what you do for a living every day is unethical in some way, one reaction and a very reasonable reaction is to tell yourself that what you're doing is important just to get you through it mm-hmm. that you say if you tell yourself these animals need me then you can fool yourself into believing that what you're doing is morally correct yeah and there, there's also a point to be made about the fact that one individual can't take down the whole system like one trainer leaves they hire a new one who's maybe more ruthless than the previous one or less less educated and prepared than the previous one but that's why i think the villains of this yeah. film are the management not yeah. the workers yeah after the release of the film there were quite a good number of trainers who came out in defense of SeaWorld. So I'm wondering like what percentage of people working for SeaWorld would have been on board with boycotting them. Well, this brings me on to another thing about this film, which makes it maybe a bit more iffy, is that the family of Dawn Brancho, the I think the focal point of the victims who died during a show, 
her family is still quite supportive of SeaWorld, mm-hmm. apparently, and didn't give their permission to have this film made about their daughter. Mm. It's a question whether Dawn would have even wanted to contribute to this if it had happened to someone else. We'll, obviously, we'll never know. But it, it, it is interesting, and there are different perspectives on this. I broadly agree with the sentiments that this film has, and I think that the stuff that you can get from watching these shows, you can probably get from watching a nature documentary. Mm-hmm. So keeping animals in captivity are not only unethical, but they're also totally unnecessary. In captivity for this particular purpose. And I think SeaWorld themselves have facilities where they bring in, you know, they're more like sanctuaries where they bring in animals for, like, to heal them from injuries or to relocate them for conservation purposes. But they're only kept in captivity for a brief spell and then re-released. Structures like that can work. It's the film, if you are to believe the film's framing of it, it seems like the entire design of the SeaWorld Park is made to be as antithetical as possible to the way that whales have evolved to live and have evolved to feel happy. If people with children watch this film and as a result don't give money to the organisations that put on these shows and treat animals poorly, then I think we can only view it as a successful documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's, you know, another, a whole tangent we're not going to get into about the limits of media, like what can one film do to sway an entire population of millions? But, you know, that's, that's less the responsibility of the film itself. That's everything? I was going to ask you a question about Jaws and Blackfish. Oh, yeah, yeah. fuck. We didn't even talk about Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> no, the reason I chose it is because, as we sort of alluded to in the Jaws section, sharks in the wild aren't nearly as ferocious or aggressive as they are in Jaws. And, in fact, animals in captivity are more likely to become aggressive and violent and a danger to the humans that handle them. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to pick something that really showed that and the reason why I chose a documentary rather than a feature film that maybe showed that not just because I couldn't find a feature film you could have picked Orca it's too well known (laughs) I think think Orca's too well known but also that this I remember this being very pertinent when it came out and I think that showing the actual conditions of this actual issue counterbalanced by the very fictionalised Jaws it felt like a natural counterbalance Mm -hmm. so yeah that's why I chose it in comparison to Jaws okay but yeah I could have I could have chosen Orca but I didn't. I also could have chosen Day of the Dolphin. You could have chosen Day of the Dolphin. Which uh, will be a special episode. For, for, no, I'm joking. Okay, should we talk about... Availability? availability? Yeah, we will. I haven't got it up. Just vamp for a bit. Just start scatting. You can rent and buy Blackfish on Rakuten TV, Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Sky Store, YouTube, and Dog Wolf On Demand. Well, that's a new one. <laughs> Dogwoof. Let's okay. move on to our final film of this episode. Yeah, drumroll. Which oh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not qualified to do. Okay, let's move on to our next film. Play the trailer. Destruction, 2020 film by Toyota Toshiaki, part of his Resurrection trilogy of three shorter films. This one is a, an hour long, the other two are about 15 minutes. 
And there is an official synopsis that starts about how seven years ago a mysterious monster was found in a coal mine and it's rumored that a plague spread from there. But I would say that it's a raging scream about the first half of 2020. Yeah, the monster was COVID all along. Exactly. <laughs> the real monster was the friends we made along the way. Yeah, or the ones uh, we lost. The ones, the ones uh, we affected us. <laughs> there you go, that's it. So I'm curious, Kai, why did you choose this right, film? Right, I figured that yours? would be the first question. It's, it's a pretty obvious right, one. Because the, I originally had picked another film, Jalikatu, which yeah. is a Malayalam film about a bull who runs rampant into a small, in a small town in the surrounding forest which was very much labeled the South Indian Jaws at the time when it came out. So then I, when you said you said you'd picked White Dog, I feel like, well, we've got too much, maybe too much similar films because it's basically the same plot. We got Jaws with Paws, we got South Indian Jaws. Yeah, now you got Jaws yeah. with Horns, basically. Yeah, Jaws with Horns. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's a very good film. <laughs> I recommend it to anyone. But then I got to thinking about the thing that struck me this time with Jaws was those scenes in the town with the mayor and the townspeople who were worried about their money and how that was reminiscent now of what happened in the past few years with COVID and with governments and businesses. And then all of a sudden, at the time I started thinking about this, I was coming back from the Camera Japan Film Festival, which I worked for, and I thought, should I pick something Japanese? And I thought, something like a monster movie, but then that's very obvious, and those are well known to pick Japanese monster movies. And I thought about this film all of a sudden, and I thought, well, this is a film very much about, in a way, about the response to COVID in the early part of the of 2020. And it starts with a monster, briefly. <laughs> So that's why I picked it. So it opens up with this black and white sequence, which, oh, small parenthesis, you recommended or the director recommended to watch this film with headphones, which I have to echo that recommendation because the sound design is outstanding and it's so enveloping and it's so well crafted but yeah it opens with this sequence it's an entire black and white sequence with this character walking into a cave and he walks through it for like three minutes it's it's a very long series of shots during which yeah you just have this like all-encompassing sound design just this very oppressive bass noises uh, building up and up and then it gets to the end of the cave and this is like huge beating heart kind of creature that once again like really echoes and reverberates in your ears and that that setup is very very monster movie like but then once we get to the present day uh, shifts <laughs> aesthetically and, and tonally and narratively shifts around a lot it's a very heterogeneous film for such a short uh, experience <laughs> so the other thing that uh, after subjecting you to a film that was over three hours last time I figured I'd pick a short one this time you um, wanted it to average out <laughs> exactly I, I appreciate that I have to be honest, I don't know if I like this film. Right. Or what I make of it, because I saw it this morning and I just need to let it sit with me for a bit and maybe even rewatch it, because it's not very long, it's fairly straightforward to rewatch. But it was strange to watch in the context of Jaws. It was really interesting and I didn't know where it was going, but I think that maybe this one in particular wasn't for me. And that's fine, and I'm glad that I watched it. The stuff about COVID just felt very, also felt very... So it's, I'm going to go a little bit further back than just the film, but Toyoda is a, a Japanese film director who mostly makes independent films, and he was about to break through into the mainstream a little bit, or in the art house scene at least, in 2005, but then he got arrested for 
having a joint, basically, because Japan has very strict drug laws. He did prison time for this, and this severely impeded his career because after that, studios did not want to work with him for a long time. When he got out of there, started making some commercial films first, and then got back into his own groove again. And then in 2019, I think, in April, somebody had said to the police, that guy still got drugs, you want to get him again because he's known for that, you can make a big bust. So the police set this up to be a big drug bust of celebrity, film director and things. So they invited the press before going there, then turned up in his house and there was no drugs at all. At some point during the search, the policeman found a, 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 not ancient, but a a handgun that was, he had inherited from his grandfather from the Second World War. It was rusty, no longer being able to be used, but they arrested him on an illegal firearms charge because the press was downstairs. They needed to (laughs) parade him, so they needed to have something. And apparently you can put, uh, in Japan there's a, a long time before you need to be actually charged with something that you can put in jail for a while. So he was in jail for two weeks and then they released him without a charge because they had nothing on him. But in, because it was bred for the press, he was known as the gun director by that point. Sorry, did they direct the film The Gun, whose poster is in the White Dog's <laughs> trainer? <laughs> of <Office>. connection. <laughs> <laughs> so then he was very angry about that and he couldn't get people to work with him again and he decided to make Wolf's Calling, which is the first of the trilogy. It's a short film, which is very much just a release of a build-up of anger. Because as he said, mm. his idol don't want to express my anger but I wouldn't put my anger in my films because that's where it's more fun and maybe I make a little bit of money yeah this is a very angry film yes it's got opening credits and closing credits both of which are set to this is it is it punk music I, I feel like I it's a punk rap punk. metal hybrid that yeah <laughs> really interesting music yeah, yeah and yeah, so and it, yeah. he screams that film Wolf's Calling in a theater and he learns from the owner of that cinema that next year for the opening week of the Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, we're just going to close down the cinema because nobody's going to bother showing up. They're all going to watch the Olympics. So he says, oh, that's ridiculous. If I can make a film before then, can I just rent out your theater for the week and just show that movie exclusively there? He says, if you can do it, sure. This is in September 2019. So he starts writing a script about the Olymp- an anti-Olympics film, basically, because he wants to show how the Olympics are not bitter at thing, all. But the corrupt thing, but by the Japanese government, they shouldn't be doing it. He starts production in February 2020. So well, well. immediately things <laughs> don't go well. COVID happens. People, people don't want to work with him anymore also now because they don't want to work on a set which makes sense. He changes the scripts. He had already made it about a plague, so this was very convenient. He just added the monster to it to make it an allegory about COVID response. Ended up finishing it two days before the July 24th supposed opening of the Olympics, which of course didn't happen at all that year. Screened it in the actual week. Oh. <laughs> and then the final short that he made for the trilogy is screened on the actual opening of the Olympics the next year. Alright, and so do we know of the film which parts were filmed before COVID and which parts were filmed after so like i said production started in february so oh so like the screenplay the fi- yeah. actual filming of it was all during, all during COVID, COVID. okay which like makes sense when you watch it because like I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder now are characters ever in the same frame uh, like in the same shot as each other no so, sometimes they are but they're like in open air shots standing far apart there is one crowd scene that's like kind of a half documentary scene where obviously every passerby is wearing masks yes and there's one scene where they're carrying a body but everybody except 
kept him as wearing a mask as well. But the, there's a scene at the beginning where, where he's going into the cave and the guy guard in the cave has a mask on and he makes a comment about the mask being needed to protect yourself from this monster inside. It's got so many clever ways of curting around COVID restrictions. Uh, my question about it would be, I didn't read much about it before watching it, but I looked at some opinions. I saw people describe it in part as almost like a music video, people describing it as, you know, this soundscape. I was expecting something that was more of a mood piece, if you will. But then the film has an actual narrative skeleton under it. And I think the narrative itself is what very often I, w- I was getting, I felt myself getting distracted from when they were actually talking about the monster and its lore and some of the, the, the character drama involved in it. But the, the, the craft and the visuals and the editing is what really kept me in. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you, as someone who's probably seen it, you know, or studied it a bit more than me, how do you reconcile the film's narrative in inverted commas. I ignore it. The, exactly. That's why I, when you asked, when I introduced it, I was like, I start on this synopsis and I abandoned that two sentences yeah. in because it's not important, really. I don't know, because the, the affect that he's trying to express, this anger, screaming out, this frustration, like that, it does that very, very well to the point that some of the scenes where the characters are just sitting down and talking to each other about things that I, I don't really understand felt like the, they were bringing the adrenaline down a little bit too much. But I'm sure that if you are to like read the screenplay and study like why he included the, those scenes there a lot of them do have a point i was just so enraptured by some of the shots in this film that when it goes back to like some shot reverse scenes of two characters talking it, it really felt like uh, take me back that take me back to that like long takes and soundscapes and music and and anger and all of that and, and that's because it's funny because I, I texted you about him recommending to watch it with headphones. That's also because he actually what he wants everybody to do is watch it in cinema. And he actually needed to be convinced that to allow it to be released on home video. Because he originally didn't want that. But he was convinced to that because he had apparently a practice in Japan where filmmakers just contact theaters directly and just screen their films there. But he said, yeah, that doesn't happen. You're not going to rent something in, in London. It doesn't happen like that. So, you're, so you need to let me release this on home video otherwise people won't see it. All right. So yeah, thank you Kai, for like educating us a bit more on this. Very, very, very inscrutable piece of points. Yeah, Charlie, you haven't said much in a while. Have no, you... I haven't. I was listening to Kai yeah, yeah. and I don't feel like I have honestly much contribute regarding this film. I think it was just a bit too inscrutable for me. I think it, it could do with, a, it could definitely do with a rewatch on my part and examining it in the context that Kai's given. It's not a film that I didn't like. It's just a film that I don't quite get at this time. To, to get people to watch it, what I would do is describe some of the shots, but I'm wondering, like, how does our policy to spoilers apply to a film that is mostly made of visuals? Because there is what is probably the chief shot in the film near the end is so masterfully made. And, like, in and of itself could have been a very, very interesting two-minute short film or music video type of thing. But I think part of what makes it so affecting is that you don't see it coming. And, and just the sound design. Like, like it, it feels... Like, I'm not giving any specifics, unfortunately, but, well, yeah, the poster image, that's not a spoiler. So there's this moment where a character who is, again, for narrative reasons, trying to uh, shed his humanity, is instructed to enter this pool of blood. And there's a cut to this, like, literally looks like a, looks like a puddle on the ground of, like, vivid, red, uh, reflective blood. And he stands over it, and the camera, like, in a very unnatural way, like, 
tilts downwards, pointing direct at the paddle. And you can see the character's reflection upside down into the paddle. In a way that feels almost like the camera should be in the reflection as well, but isn't. And in a way that is so like spatially disorienting that it really, I don't know, conveys this feeling of, I repeat myself, but disorientation and, and, and confusion. And sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a lot, but as a final pointer to Jaws, we talk about like Jaws creating affect and creating horror through its soundtrack. And that's very much what this film does. And not only through music, but also through sound effects. And that's, yeah, that's probably, that, that's that's a good comparison to draw, I would say. Beyond the, the vague conception that I had. <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's very much a film of, of sound and vision. <laughs> yeah, may not be entirely coherent at times, because the story that is told is chronologically. Yeah. And you only find that out later, because the person that we were just talking about opens could be constructed as a suicide. It could also be a metaphor for lockdown in some ways, but it's also in a coffin, so it is a, there's a a lot of there's a lot of weird mer- metaphors going on that you could read into it no it's it's a literal self-isolation he locks himself in a box yeah exactly <laughs> i don't know how ready i am for movies explicitly about covid imagine seeing this in, in july 20 on july 24 2020 <laughs> i feel like a lot of the bad movies about covid uh, came out right after covid like looking back right. on it being like oh remember the crazy time it's like yeah we do <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he's, he's, he stated in an interview that he said he felt that most movies, whether they're period movies or actual movies, are in any sense a reflection of the time. He felt like it was important to reflect this particular uh, six months of time. Yeah. <laughs> to document it in a way, he said. But in his own very specific way, because it's not something most people would call documenting. Yeah, and as we said, COVID does have a material effect on the shooting conditions of the film and its, it's look, the way that it's framed. True. And there's a specific anger at somebody like letting people infect people and, and that the government's not acting or at some point somebody's railing against politicians landowners bankers and monks we know you're hiding in there he's shouting at a closed door of a um, oh yeah yeah because they, they refuse to let him in that's right i was thinking of the the lyrics of the song that plays over the opening credits <laughs> yeah there's uh, some very pointed lines in there as well all right so talk about availability yeah for sure unfortunately you can't stream this film anywhere in the uk right now but you can get the film on dvd yeah and I think it's streaming in the US. Because I think that, that the, the uh, video release was specifically is Blu-ray, which is a collection, a, a box set of Toyota films by Third Window. And that uh, guy who runs Third Window is the one who convinced him to allow these films to be released on home video in the first place. Oh, that's great. So you get a bunch of shorts. Yeah, and there's two other feature-length films. Toyota 2005, 2020, I think, uh, is the name of the box set. And there's a bunch of films in there. Okay, amazing. So, should we finish? up yeah so kai which film if jaws is the main course which of our alternates is dessert um well in a way i guess blackfish would be with dessert because it goes down easy in a sense does it <laughs> uh, in a way well i i didn't find it challenging let, let okay. me put it that way and i think the day of destruction would be a side order that's too hot and spicy than you thought it would be 
Yeah. And why Dutch Mart alternate, of course, that you would order once you go back to the same restaurant? Yeah, that's fair. I would say that White Dog is probably the closest one narratively. It's it, it's a pick you would get if you wanted to watch a film that is also about animal attacks, is more rooted in real world commentary and less in myth or mythology. Uh, Blackfish is obviously what you would watch if you wanted to see more of the animal's perspective as an animal rather than as an extension of the humans. And finally, Day of Destruction. Uh, I said by my point that it's, it's a good companion piece with Jaws if you're really interested in the craft, in Spielberg's ability or anyone's ability to create horror and dread and affect through soundscapes and through eclectic visuals. Uh, you know, it, it is about a monster as well if you want to go for that, but I, I, I think even Kai who loves the film than we do doesn't really care about the narrative yeah, too right. much. So. <laughs> I think for me, the answer is White Dog. I, I think there are concerns with Blackfish that we have mentioned. I think it is a worthwhile film to watch, but I, I think that it is wanting in in some ways. I, I, whereas I think White Dog is a film that is, you know, a really engaging monster film with a really interesting twist and is extremely successful in what it sets out to do. Uh, regarding Day of Destruction, as I've said, it's not that I didn't like it. I just still don't quite get it, but I'm also really... Also, you had it for breakfast. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that please don't mistake me not necessarily having much to say about it with me not being happy that Kai brought it to our attention because so much of what we're trying to do on this podcast is asking people to come up with stuff that we wouldn't seek out or even know about on our own. And that is a really fun experience, even if it doesn't always result in a new favourite. So... Thank you, Kai, for, as always, thinking outside the box, as you did in Blade Runner. Just to finish up, uh, thank you so much, Kai. If you want to plug anything and tell people where they can follow you. Well, I'm actually off social media at this point. Um, Good for you. I, the last time I was on I was on the podcast, I was still on Twitter, but since some certain changes have been made, I decided to call that quits. My own website is actually has been on hiatus since for a year now so that's also not the great it's called Frameland but there's no, been no updates for a year but though there's actually still an article on Wolf's Calling the first short of the year but I think I've summarized most of what I've written there just in the intro of the earlier but and you're still working for Camera Japan right so, so some some people around here have money to travel so Camera Japan is a is a festival that runs every year and it's where you found out about Day of, the, of Destruction so exactly and it's yeah it's in September in Rotterdam and Amsterdam and actually we're one of the few where we're one of the festivals that actually does all the introductions in English too so okay there you go as always thank you to our esteemed producer Jade artist Molecule who does our wonderful logo you can follow us on Twitter at, at BCUWatchPod for now because who knows if that's going to be there by the time this episode comes out and at BCUWatchPodcast on Instagram which seems to be holding firm thank you Francesca thank you Charlie and thank you for listening Ta-dum. <laughs>